0: I'm one of these guys that still keeps my slide rule in the top drawer of my desk. I don't pull it out, to use an example to someone else, of of the way we used to work. What I do is I'll pull it out occasionally in private and remind myself that, that our ways of working and the skills we need, they're constantly changing and they're constantly improving.
1: Welcome to another RLG International podcast. I am Rick Hyland. This podcast is for those... Individuals passionate about personal and professional continuous improvement. Our purpose is to provide current and future C-suite leaders, the mindset, skill set, and tool set to become leaders of continuous performance improvement. I'm very excited about today's special guest. It's Chris Miller, a global project management specialist and retired project director from Chevron Corporation. Chris, welcome to our podcast. How are you today?
0: Good morning, Rick. Uh, I'm fine. And look, let me say I'm excited and honored to be a part of this program today. You know, continuous improvement is vital to everyone's career, and I certainly appreciate the opportunity to contribute.
1: Well, I'm honored to have you on and appreciate you spending time with us. So, Chris, let me go through some of your background and bio before I start firing off questions for you. Um, Chris graduated with a Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering from the University of Tulsa. He has a Capital Stewardship Organizational Capability Certification and operational excellence certification from Chevron Corp. He also has 40 years experience in various capacities with Chevron around the globe in the US, Angola, Nigeria, and Australia. And we had the good fortune to work with Chris on a big project, a mega project in Australia. So Chris, anything else from your background uh, that you might be relevant for the listeners?
0: Well, Rick, I might introduce myself with one of those pieces of, of curiosity in my background. Okay. Yeah, I spent a lot of time growing up with my uh, my grandfather who worked in oil production. And at that time, I concluded the oil industry would not fulfill my career expectations. But uh, fortunately in university, I, I got exposed to to the complexity and the, the technicalities and the commercial and global and human scale of oil and gas industry. And I've certainly never looked back. So my, you know, my career is kind of founded in this. I didn't think I'd end up there, but I sure enjoyed being there.
1: Oh, well, glad you did. So on that, Chris, what foundational experiences have you had, either positive or painful, negative, that really helped define your leadership style?
0: Uh, good question, Rick. I think um, maybe my most most important foundation element is the diversity that I've experienced. And, you know, I, I'm not talking about diversity in the traditional way people measure in terms of, of uh, people and various groups of people, but really the broad range of work experiences that uh, that I've had. And I'll start that off with, with technical responsibilities, You know, even after all these years from university. I am still a, just a simple engineer at heart. Uh, however, I've had a range of assignments and associated roles, and probably 25% of them have been technical. The rest have been something else. So I've had the opportunity to develop capabilities working in areas of governance, finance, strategy, social responsibility, uh, advocacy, business development, and so many other, other dimensions um, that, that have created a diverse set of, of experiences in my background. Um, I've also benefited from a lot of quality mentoring, and uh, you know, a lot of that actually came from, from global executives and political leaders I look up to. But interestingly, I think maybe the most beneficial mentoring I got was when I was working on front lines with, with craft folks, whether it's riggers or boilermakers or welders, uh, just a lot of understanding of how, what it takes to get work done. And then finally in this theme of diversity, I, I certainly have enjoyed a very globalized uh, career. Uh, you know, a lot of different work locations that have given me a strong appreciation for for local cultures and and how culture shapes the ability to get things done. Uh, if I step back for a minute from, from that diversity comment, um, I'll also note that probably the two most notable changes between my early career and now in terms of leadership when people, people talk to me. Uh, you know, firstly, I learned the value of working a long game strategy and constantly keeping centered on the, the end in mind outcome that we frequently talk about. While, same time, simultaneously always working to communicate the, the current tactical plan so near-term performance stays well-aligned and well-coordinated with, with the target outcomes. And I think the second change and, and probably the most important theme I'll, I'll try and hit is, it's constantly working to build and maintain and strengthen trust. And that's a, at a professional level and also across all the organizations that, that I'm involved with. So whether it's the, the team I'm in, the contractors we're working with, the investors we're working for, the customers, the stakeholders, and all the other individuals and groups that, that have the ability to impact that long game. So I cycle back to the first point. You got to you got to get stay focused on the end in mind.
1: So Chris, a couple things in there really interest me. One is as we've been talking about on these podcasts. This is you know these the role of a project director, a project leader in these megas is so much more than the technical side of it. And you've highlighted all that in in your interest in the called what called diversity and I love that. But the, this comment you made around the long game that you said a couple times there, does that mean, you know, uh, everything from when a bump in the road and the plan happens that week or and then you focus on the long game so you're, you're not distracted from the goal? Or what exactly does the long game mean to you? Can you expand a little bit more on that?
0: Yeah, Rick. I, I, I spent, again, back to this diversity, I spent a period of my career working in strategic planning
1: mm-hmm.
0: and learning that, that, you know, there's, a, there's a, the, what are you doing right now? You know, the practical. There's the business plan for folks that are involved. In it. What's the one-year, the, one the three-year programs that we're running today to deliver outcomes that we're going to measure today? But those have got to be aligned to, but where do you want to be? And you know, if you like, uh, I mean, I always like the term, where do you want to be 10 years from now? Right. Uh, the long game. And so whether I'm talking about the work we're doing or, you know, frequently if I'm mentoring somebody. You know, it's, it's great to discuss where somebody's at in their current career, but the more interesting discussion, though, is let's talk about the long game. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Mm. So I like to use that long game view of, you know, whether you like sports analogies or business analogies or political analogies, any of them. Um, you know, you got to focus on what you're delivering today. But you've got to have it lined up with
1: where you want to be. Yeah, really well said. Yeah, the, you also said the word, you know, keeping with the end in mind or focusing on the end of mind is a very powerful mentoring and coaching strategy. So, okay, thank you for that. So, Chris, as you know, on previous podcasts, we've been talking about the track record of delivery of mega capital projects, and, and we've also been talking about some of the solutions to improve. Um, and I'd like to spend a few moments with you today and, and maybe have a little fun in our discussion Uh, I'm going to share with you a statement that discusses either the problem or the solution. And you're going to tell me if it's accurate or wrong, or not accurate or wrong, or if it's correct, why it's correct, and and some of your experience and context. And I've picked kind of six areas for discussion. And I'd like to hear, I'm going to share a recommendation, and then you're going to either give me a not so fast meaning, Rick, that's not totally accurate, let me tell you why or yes and. Uh, Meaning that's accurate, and here's why uh, in your experience and context. So I thought we'd have a little bit of uh, fun in our discussion debate today. So why don't we get going in kind of discussion area number one, talking about the problem. And as I've repeated on previous podcasts, there's a uh, McKenzie study and many others that talks about, on average, these mega projects uh, with budgets over $1 billion dollars. Uh, have been delivered one year behind schedule and run 30% over. And that's a 2017 conference, but it was also verified uh, recently in the Shanghai LNG conference I attended. So, Chris, have the results of these mega projects, uh, particularly in the chemical and LNG space, been a huge bust?
0: Well, Rick, I'm going to start off and say not so fast. I'd like to go into a little bit of this one. I mean, certainly it's true that, that many of the mega projects have been over cost and over scheduled. And it's well documented by good quality research, whether it's by McKinsey or any of the others that, that support us, as well as the common discussion topic across the industry. And I'm going to throw in the bug.
1: Okay.
0: It's also important to remember that investors don't just measure success by cost and schedule. I mean, to me, the role of project leadership is to create value for the investors. And that's driven by more than just cost and schedule. So, you know, when I I sort of step back and I look at this from from the vantage of an investor in a mega project, you know, the investment evolves through three stages of life. The first one is developing the asset. And this is the one everybody sees and most people are a part of. It's the visible, very visible face of the project world. It's the engineering, the procuring, the constructing, and, and everything else that goes along with it. Everyone sees the scale of a major, mega project during this stage, and certainly the commentary fixates on, uh, on time and spend. And for an investor, it's a period of spending money in preparation to make money. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of investment groups, I know, talk about this. It, it's the time of a negative treasury. Uh, you get through that, and an investor looks at Then there's this second phase that tends to, to be hidden from most people. It, it's the commission and startup of an asset. You know, mechanical completion has been declared and the spend is wound down and the the huge numbers of people have all gone away. However, in a mega project, this this can take a year or more to complete. And as well as the scale that we saw in the the first stage, now we really see the complexity of a mega project. It gets visible to everyone as, as the commission and startup organizations. Identify and resolve issues that have roots from decisions and actions that were taken years earlier in the project. And for the investor, although it's a, it's a time of lower spend, there's still no revenue, and the time continues to clock. The, the treasury remains in the deficit. And then finally, there's the third stage of, of a mega project, and that's sustaining a successful operation of the asset. It's producing a product that's got to meet the customer quality expectations and the customer quantity expectations, and all at the same time controlling costs. So finally, for an investor, it is a period of maximizing revenue to create the value that was expected when the final investment decision was sanctioned. It's delivering the positive value. So if we if we consider all three stages of that as a mega project, um, and mega projects as a bus, I really think it, it's necessary to step back and and remind ourselves the key performance measures that underpin all three stages of, of the investment. And uh, you know the first one I always start off with is safety. You have to deliver safety in, in, a, in, a, in any, any project, but even more so in a mega project. You have to stay focused on quality. If you make a bad decision or take a bad action early, it certainly impacts the second and third stages of a, of a project's life. Now, we talk about costs and we talk about schedules, so those certainly fit in there. And then finally, um, as, as the world of projects has evolved, The issues of compliance become ever more important. We have a lot more oversight, scrutiny, and requirements to meet. And finally, there's the reputation. Um, A project can't be successful if it generates a bad reputation. All these interplay, and any one of them can can drive to a a failed project, but you have to deliver all of them to, to deliver a successful project. So as an industry, meeting costs and schedule targets, it's critical but only if these other metrics have also been delivered.
1: Yeah, great point, Chris, and, and your, your point's well taken. Let's look at total value, not just uh, cost and schedule during engineering and construction. So thanks for that. Okay, let's see if I can get uh, the next discussion area a little closer to right. And um, I really want to start talking about some solutions or recommendations. And uh, let's talk about feed or front-end engineering of the project, as you and I know that is so critical to the success of the project. And our experience and research suggests that on uh, many of these, are twenty, that only twenty percent of the megas have been done with a quality feed milestone on time, on budget, uh, in the feed stage. And uh, I'd like to start talking about some of the solutions to uh, try to get um, a more timely and quality feed and a couple of the ideas are that i want to run by you and have your comment on and you know one is to maybe have two engineering estimates or at minimum have outside objective verification of the estimates because we've been uh, so far off on on that uh, feed engineering and on the estimates and i guess the main point being let's take time to have quality feed before going to fid and i know that's sometimes easier said than done but Chris, what are your thoughts on this? Will this help improve the ultimate performance of the entire value of the project?
0: Well, Rick, this time I'm going to give you an absolute positive yes, thumbs up. I'm in full agreement that, uh, you know, all, all steps have got to be taken during feed to, to produce a robust understanding of the proposed investment. You know, feed is the period when, when leadership and decision-making, is making, uh, it focuses on creating the opportunity for value. So all the different things that we stack up, that's an opportunity statement. However, after an investment decision is taken, after feed is done, the, the focus shifts for leadership and decision-making to delivering on the promise of value. You're not creating anymore, you're delivering. So for me, you know, the most essential element of the feed deliverable is really the execution plan. Okay. It covers everything associated with all three stages that I mentioned earlier. And I, I liken mega projects to, to, to corporations the scale, the complexity, the time span, require long-term robust strategic planning. Again, I'm back to end in minding, in mind, along with comprehensive detailed planning for what's going to be happening in the near term, the immediate programs. And, and my experience is that a, a true multidiscipline feed team that addresses this entire range of issues that the project might be confronted with in all three stages is more likely to create a plan that can be delivered. So, Tactics like having two two estimates prepared, or or doing an independent outside uh, verification, those certainly strengthen the quality of feed. My caution is to recognize that any estimate is only a representation from the underlying analysis and planning. And hence it's, it's critical that we focus on the entire feed program and how it's implemented to create that sound basis. So we've got a good cost, we've got a good schedule that's used in the final investment
1: decision. So Chris, you bring up a couple of really good points, the importance of that uh, quality execution plan out of feed. And then I really liked your point around a multi-discipline feed team, having the right different disciplines, including some of the construction folks and the frontline operators, et cetera, et cetera, on that team. But let me ask you kind of a, a sub-point here. A lot of times we see... Um, pressure to rush through feed because the board has a big meeting coming up, or what do you do in that case as a project team, when uh, the quality of what you're doing is maybe rushed a bit for uh, maybe board decisions or whatnot. Is there a strategy or have you ever come across that? And how do you handle that as a project team and make sure an honor to do this phase of the project well, versus the pressures of the, the company and the investors. Have you got a comment there?
0: Well, I do, and look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start off with this, this earlier comment about building trust. I mean, during mm-hmm. the feed period, another one of the deliverables is to, is to establish an understanding of the investors and the key decision makers about, you know, what they're, they're gonna be confronted with. And so certainly I've, I've been involved in programs where somebody said, for a reason, that's important to the investor. We have to meet a date. Okay, so I've, if I've been successful and built a relationship, then I need to tell them, if you need to make a date that's early, then here's here's what's compromised, and are you prepared to accept the compromise? And it's back to being having a relationship and being able to be truthful. Um, you know, a project team is spending the investor's money. A project yep. team is working under a license that's been granted by any number of of entities, whether they're political licenses or social licenses or anything else. So, you know, I, I I would rather, rather than say it's wrong to do that, I think it's more important to, to understand, you know, a, a, a shorter feed period, a smaller feed program introduces a range of uncertainties. And if people are prepared to go ahead with the uncertainties, then that's fine. Uh, the, the point that I draw the line is, I think it would be you know, I would I would not fulfill my obligation of trust if I just accepted somebody without telling them. You know, here's the uncertainty you introduce by by choosing to do that action. Yeah. Um, and then and then ensure that you know it's an informed decision because you know my, my experience is most of good project leadership is based on making sound decisions.
1: Great point. Love the point about that's where the trusting relationship comes in and being transparent about the consequences. All right, thank you, Uh, lots of uh, good insights there, Chris. Let's move to discussion area number three. And as you know, many of the owners are trying to de-risk their engineering and construction phases of the project. And one of the ways that we're doing this is uh, different types of contracts. In fact, we see the industry going a lot to fix lump sum contracts. And I can see the benefits of reducing the cost risk from the owner to the contractor but a fixed lump sum brings a new set of risks. Uh, and the owner now owns the, really, in, in effect, the schedule risk if the estimates are off, if there are many changes, or if there's many changes in design, the owner also has the risk of less oversight and verification. So with this, you know, our, our recommendation, and it just stresses something you've already said, is the importance of strong contractor partnerships, strong leadership, one version of the truth, uh, a very strong joint company operating rhythm is still needed to deliver the project on time on budget. Chris, what are your thoughts about these recommendations and will they help make a meaningful difference to de-risk the project?
0: Yeah, Rick, again, I think I'm going to say yes to your recommendation for clear and visible metrics and strong leadership and and, and making sure that the contractor relationships are, are maintained, uh, the use of joint oversight and operating rhythm those are all key elements in the delivery of a mega project. Uh, you did start this third topic talking about contracting. I'd like to expand on that for a minute.
1: Okay. You know, another
0: one of the deliverables from a successful feed is a contracting plan. And there are a myriad of variables that, that, that need to be assessed as part of deciding what scopes are suitable for, for lump sum as compared with other forms of contracting. Um, you know, frequently mega projects are financially too substantial for a single investor. And hence we see investment consortiums and, and sometimes those will be partially underwritten by a, a, a lending package uh, with financial institutions behind it. And similarly, a mega project is almost always too substantial for a single contractor. Um, it's through the contracting plan that the investors have the opportunity to implement contracting that's gonna lead to the best outcome. And so you know, whether it's lump sum or unit rate uh, time and materials, or mixed contracting, uh, incentivized contracting, uh, those all need to be evaluated. And, and uh, it gives the opportunity for the investors to, to make decisions about uh, you know, how they're going to manage the various risks that exist, and including the extent to which um, they're, they're introducing contracting that's going to deliver price, going to set up contractor consortiums for them or not. And, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, I mean, that is one of the things that come with the more you try and put in a lump sum the more you're likely to exceed the 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 capability of any single contractor and you bring that many more parties in and so it's a it's a bit of a circle that you have to manage um, and I will say in a mega project it's it's vital for the project leadership to develop and sustain a, a clear vision of success on back to the end in mind yep and at the same time ensure the all the teams have strong capability in the area's critical to success, including contracting. So contracting is not just a, a simple one shot, bring somebody in, have that person uh, draw up a plan and go. It, it, it's got a lot of background to it. And, uh, you know, it takes a, a large number of, of people in time to do that. Um, and I think I need to reinforce it. Contracting decisions during feed lay the foundation for the strength of execution performance, and the ability in the future to use tools like operating rhythm and theoretical maximum performance. So even even what you might wanna do in a couple years comes back to how you contract and feed. Um, I I know I'm giving a bit of a long response here, but I think I'll close uh, the thoughts on this question by simply advising to be aware of the the snake oil salesman, the person who comes in and has a, a simple solution to a large and a complex issue you know, making critical execution plan decisions without robust analysis of the situation is likely to go sideways. And it'll go sideways way after it's too late to make a change. And that's a sure, a, a sure recipe to destroy value rather than create it for the investors. So, you know, whether it's lump sum or feed competitions or favorite sun suppliers or domestic content expectations, those are all part of this discussion. They just need to be part of a of a well thought out set of strategies and plans that come out of feed.
1: Mm, yeah, I like again stressing the importance of you know all those right plans uh, happening in the feed area of your uh, project. Thank you for those insights. Um, let's go to area number four, discussion number four. I'm dying to get your insights on this one. Um, as you know, we're big on metrics. We're passionate about finding the right leading and lagging metrics to drive frontline productivity and. That's a big topic in today's mega capital projects, as you're well aware. And our background uh, before we got into mega capital projects is on optimizing turnarounds. And uh, as you know, the key in turnarounds is to build and optimize a credible schedule and then track and drive schedule adherence. A schedule where each craft in each area know exactly where they are on schedule, especially the critical path areas. And this type of highly choreographed schedule allows for optimum use of manpower and equipment. and leads to a very high level of productivity. And in capital projects, Chris, what we've noticed is um, there is a less, less of a tendency to follow that schedule uh, than we see in turnarounds. And I know there's many reasons for that. Um, we see in, in many of these large capital part projects, the areas or the craft tracking hours earned and burned and not necessarily following the schedule but progressing hours, and uh, as you know, this type of approach leads to potential conflict when you get about 95% complete. Those last five percent are very hard because they're usually in areas of uh, a lot of crane use or uh, <laughs> high uh, complexity or um, a lot of manpower in one area, and can turn turn out to be very time-consuming and very costly. So, um, I am getting to my question here: is is I'm, I'm dying to hear your answer on, can, in the capital project space, can we build a constructible schedule and then get that kind of schedule adherence by day, by craft, by area? And then, as you know, we like to set up a tight operating rhythm where there's crystal clear clarity in each work group uh, where they are on the schedule and what actions they're taking each day and each week. So Chris, long question. can we get to that level of schedule adherence in big mega capital projects
0: you know rick i'll agree with a it was a long <laughs> push. i'm going to give you a yell. i i think i'm going to respond to you yes we can do this and also i'm going to say wait a minute not so fast okay let me give you a couple of thoughts that go with that okay first of all i i fully agree that the turnarounds are a stellar example of, of managing work to achieve. The physical schedule deliverables every shift, and to take corrective actions at the first sign of a wobble—not a problem, but just even a wobble—and mm-hmm. certainly also to capture opportunities as they arise. It's just—it is truly a, a gold star of, of you know how people can run these large, high person count jobs uh, and run them with success. So to me, the challenge is you know what tools use in turnarounds and how to use those tools for the benefit of a mega project. You know, it's, it's uh, so let, let me let me first do probably the, the obvious uh, differentiation in, in planning between turnarounds and mega projects. You know, in, a, in a turnaround, the outage duration may be anywhere from four to 16 weeks, mm-hmm. but the scope and the engineering and the materials and the contracting resources, everything required, it's fully in place, including the detailed work planning before the shutdown commences. You know, you're you're starting knowing everything you want to do. And so you deliver uh, from a, from that, that very high level of detail for that period of time. You know, contrast that with a with a mega project where you have field durations from three to five years or even more. Um, and and so the you know one of the, the key elements of mega project planning to make them successful is, is scheduling concurrency. You know a planning that, that reduces the overall duration of the job. So you can save a substantial amount of time. By starting things like foundation piling before the engineering has been completed on the foundation designs. Right. Or constructing an accommodation facility before you know the peak manpower. Um, there are inefficiencies in that, yeah. but on the other hand, the, the gain is 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 far greater. So, you know, the, the approach to the, the high level approach to planning between turnarounds and mega projects is inherently different. That said, my experience in major projects, we certainly can benefit from two emerging tools to strengthen schedule delivery. Uh, The first is implementing schedule techniques based on production control or or similar technology that's being transferred from manufacturing. Uh, This gives a stronger basis for scheduling, It creates a a much more granular detail focus, especially on critical elements in delivery. And and it establishes a basis for timely control. And as I look over my career, it has the opportunity to move control from a monthly or weekly cycle to a daily cycle, yep. and then and then secondly, you know, we, we focus on on field workforce engagement through a tool like operating rhythm, and, and that's especially valuable where we've got multidiscipline activities going on at the same time, and it creates an understanding and a commitment to deliverables on a shift by shift basis. So you know, I'm thinking to be truly successful, um, both these elements. Adopted in feed, so the contracting work methods, planning, and, and data are all supporting uh, enable this sort of a change. So I keep going back; it's another value creation opportunity in feed. So um, you know, to, I think I'd just say to be clear, you know, these kinds of tools can be targeted into the critical areas that, that drive schedule, um, but it's easy to the, the butt It's easy to carry carried away with all. And mega projects that, that adopt an all philosophy uh, just end up being mired um, in the insustainability in, in of uh, an all statement because of the, the scale and duration of a mega project.
1: Yeah, thanks for sh- sharing that insight, Chris, and the differences and the similarities and the potential um, for schedule adherence. So I appreciate that. So let's move on to our next area of discussion. And I'm going to title this cross-functional optimization. And as you know, frontline productivity is key in construction and commissioning of a mega project. And we recommend using uh, you know, frontline workers in the optimization activities on critical path areas. And some companies are still reluctant for various reasons to pull craft supervisors in to help support the optimization work. And for us, this is such a valuable opportunity to drive high productivity. Do you agree, and can you give me some of your insights in this area?
0: Yeah, Rick, this is a clear yes for me, unequivocal. I know you and I have talked several times about uh, success. This has brought us in in a recent commissioning program Mm -hmm. that involved frontline craft from multiple contractors and equipment suppliers and production operators. But I'll use an even more vivid example to to underpin why I think this is so valuable. Um, In a large pile driving program three years earlier than the same thing we were talking about, And and large means a year's duration and about 25,000 piles. So, you know, this fits in the, quote, world-scale pile driving. Yep. Uh, The contractor brought his frontline supervisors and craft together for pre-planning. They'd already done their basic plan and figured out this is how we're going to estimate the job.
1: But then they had
0: the, the frontline organizations come in. And in their reviews, they identified two areas for improvement in that draft plan. The first was material handling logistics, and the second was equipment reliability. So consequently, the the contractor actually stepped back and and designed a whole new materials handling methodology. And then he manufactured custom-designed materials handling equipment uh, deployed to the job site. And uh, he also chose, rather than than redeploying existing pile-driving equipment, he had to actually go out and buy uh, an entire suite of new pile driving equipment. So he brought uh, equipment to the job that was brand new and very custom-selected for the, the job. So the result of that was he completed the job uh, well earlier than planned, and certainly his costs were lower, which passed on to us because we had our, our site sooner than we'd expected uh, with lower costs. So uh, just a great example of have the guys who know the work review the plan and tell you here's you know here's what we you know, here's what we can't do or better yet here's how we can improve what we do and so that that engaging the front line is always a significant opportunity for me to, to improve performance and, and most importantly narrow uncertainty and I will say I'm going to go back with one caveat like the previous one be cautious of the all statement uh, my subject yeah. to here is you know do this in the targeted applications that can have a material impact on the project. Uh, it's easy uh, to get carried away with this, or any number of other improvement opportunities. So we're back to be targeted in, in, uh, in where we go after improvement
1: opportunities. Oh, great points. Yeah, thanks for that caution and that. So Chris, just do you remember in this example? This is a great example. Is this was this six months ahead of when he started the work? Was this a week in front? It sounds like they had you brought him in early enough for them to kind of change the plan, change the tools, methods. Do you remember how? early this was on, that people got organized and had these sessions?
0: Well, I mean, I, I don't remember specifically, but certainly it was far enough in advance that yeah. they had time to, to both recycle their plan and go out and build new equipment and procure new equipment. And and the link here, I, I'm sorry to keep going back to it, but it's, it's during feed, you know, there was the decision on contracting that, that okay. this particular subscope was certainly a topic for a, a, a special-purpose contractor. And so we knew early that we needed to engage that community of subcontractors and go down the path towards selecting one, and that then triggered them to go down the path of, well, how would we make a proposal to the client? So yeah. uh, it was an example of, you know, what did we, the project team, do right? Well, we spent time and feed on the contracting plan and flagged this one as something critical, and we gave time to the contractor. Uh, we didn't just rush out and say we need you on site in four weeks
1: yeah so let i just wanted to underline great points i just want to underline the point that you'd give them enough time to be able to make material changes often if we're doing that review a week before they're to start it's too late to make some of those changes in material handling and equipment etc so uh, and your point was that was decided as a critical area to look at even during the feed process so thanks for that
0: let me echo one more thing that's very important as we have these conversations. Again, if if I'm if I'm working on this, once I make a decision, I need to stay with it. The the uh, another one of those ways of how do you destroy value is you make changes and you especially you make changes late. So, you know, having a, a, a large master plan and, and breaking that down and as you let in. Doing the right things at the right time is important because, you, you know, the, the making a change, the, the sheer scale and momentum of a, of a mega project, um, it will be a disruption. So uh, pre-plan and, and then execute the plan.
1: Yeah, and you're just stressing the importance of being honest, transparent, and having those very rich cross-functional discussions in feed as well so that uh, everybody can kind of know what the plan is and follow the plan rather than jerking left, right, and center as we go along. So, yeah, great insights, Chris. I appreciate it. All right, the last area, I want to talk about leadership, a favorite topic of uh, yours and mine, and and uh, I'll come up with again with a statement and a recommendation, and you can hit it out of the park. Um, so, you know, the old days, and we had Chilling Terpstra on a couple weeks ago from Shell Oil Company talking about when he first started in projects and the senior project director was almost a godlike figure that kept all the information and and made all the decisions and and uh, as he had talked about that that those days are long gone. And you know, part of the issues is is we realize that isn't the right way to lead and manage. but these projects have got so complex, so risky, so many more people, so many more interfaces that, you know, excellent leadership and excellent contractor partnerships and trust is imperative. So that's kind of the topic that I'd like to hear your insights on. Is, it's a bit of a blinding flash of the obvious how important leaders in both the contractor and owner's positions are, that they're great communicators, that they're open, they're collaborative, as you've already stressed, they're trust building uh, to kind of build this team to be able to handle and execute the plans uh, to be able to re- react as change comes up, and and kind of be that uh, great leader, great team concept that we uh, we talk about and we aspire to. And I know this is a bit of a softball question, but Chris, can I get your what do you what are your feelings on this recommendation of the importance of strong leadership and why is it so important?
0: Well, I think again, I'm going to give you an unequivocal yes on this one, Rick. Uh, I, I concur with the recommendation. You know, as, a, as a project director, uh, what I learned was the first strategy to pursue is always uh, how we build the organizational capability of our team. Uh, it's, it's getting people who have the right values, uh, the right skills, and the right behaviors at the right time for the areas they're going to lead. And the behaviors include the ability to build and sustain trust, uh, create collaborative and aligned uh, commitment and being visible to the workforce. You asked earlier about my leadership style. and I think one of the, the notable evolutions through my career has been learning, you know, this is the time to direct versus, oh, wait a minute, this is the time to lead and communicate, or this is the time to mentor. Okay. Uh, maybe this is the time to inquire and listen. And I, I, probably the thing that, that I got last, but was most important to me, was learning when to recognize and appreciate uh, the accomplishments of people. So. You know, mega projects, as you say, they have a scale and a complexity that's grown far beyond what an individual or even a management team can deliver by directive. So I think the most successful leaders create that commitment and an inspiration for performance across a huge diversity of cultures, of professions, of people. And I will say, and in doing so, you get to, to enjoy a thrill ride that runs for years.
1: And I really like, I just want to underline your point there, uh, and Ken Blanchard, uh, One Minute Manager made this statement famous, but the importance of situational leadership, that there is a time to direct, there is a time to engage, there is a time to support and mentor. And, uh, you know, great leadership uh, knows, based on the capability of your people and the situation, when's it, what appropriate leadership style for when. So that's great insight, Chris, appreciate it. So. Chris, again, I really appreciate you being on the podcast today. You've provided so many great insights based on your expertise and experiences around the world. And in closing, anything else you wanna remind the listeners about successful delivery of capital projects?
0: Yeah, Rick, let me let me share one final thought here. And I'm gonna say, you know, I, I'm one of these guys that still keeps my slide rule in the top drawer of my desk.
1: Ooh. Cool. And what's
0: interesting is I don't pull it out, to use as an example to someone else, of, of the way we used to work. What I do is I'll pull it out occasionally in private and remind myself that, that our ways of working and the skills we need, they're constantly changing and they're constantly improving. Early in my career, at any given time, oil and gas industry might have three to five mega projects costing a billion dollars underway. Uh, in the industry today, Mega projects are measured by tens of billions of dollars, and there's probably 20 to 40 underway at any given time. So, you know, it's critical to develop new leaders with new skills to keep driving the, the challenges we face and get successful delivery. So, look, my final closing comment is just want to say thanks, Rick, for the opportunity to share my thoughts, you know, staying with an end in mind sort of perspective. The, the CI for Life program is another tool Help develop new skills for, for project leaders, whether they're veterans or new in
1: the industry. Oh, Chris, well said. And again, thank you for your time. This has been another podcast with Rick Highland with RLG International. Find us on iTunes under Rick Highland or Continuous Improvement for Life. With any questions or comments or outbursts, you can email me directly at rickh at rlginternational.com. Please share with me your learnings and success stories or insights as a result of these podcasts, and as always, live a life of sustainable, continuous improvement. Thank you and goodbye.